0: Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange with Leander Young, where we dig into conversations with seasoned musicians to discuss their life, art, and the faith of jazz as they see it. In this episode, we interview Grammy and Emmy-nominated pianist, composer, and music director, John Beasley. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange. Today, we have a super special guest, Mr. John Beasley. How are you doing, sir?
1: I'm fine. How are you, man? Thanks for having me on. Appreciate oh, thank it. you
0: for joining us. Could you please introduce the, yourself to the people, let the people know about you? Yeah, I'm John
1: Beasley. Uh, I'm a pianist and an arranger, composer. Uh, I've worn a lot of hats, but um, what I really consider myself as being as an improviser and a composer.
0: Understood. And before we start, your Grammy nominations have been announced. You're up for six, I believe, total, but three for your work as a solo artist. Correct?
1: Uh, yeah, I'm up for uh, two from, uh, well, one for my record, Monkestra. And then um, an arrangement I did for that record. And then an arrangement I did for a record I produced. And then uh, with Somi, who's a great artist, singer, uh, I conducted and arranged her record. So that's four. And then uh, James Bond, uh, no, sorry, 1917, 19- I work on that. And I don't know, what's the sixth one, man? What do you got
0: there? What I got there is, oh, well, that's technically linear notes and yeah, so I shouldn't count. That. Oh, liner notes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> But yes, congratulations to that. Somi, I'm a huge fan of her. I actually listened to that. You got a shout out in one of the songs. I got to give her, you know. So Yeah, that that was fun. That was a great project. Tell us about the, let's talk about your project before we're going into that. So Donna Lee, your arrangement on that, for that album. Stevo, I actually, that was my favorite track on that whole album. But what was your motivation behind this one?
1: Well, we, this is the third Monkister record. The first two records, volume one, volume two, um, were, uh, all Thelonious Monk composition reimagined. And, um, so, you know, when it got time to do the, the third record, um, I wanted to insert more of my own original music and other composers because, you know, it's like, you know, to pull off that trick three times in a row, it's a little daunting and it was time to evolve you know it's it, in fact i kind of feel like we've evolved from volume one to volume two and then this is sort of the next step of introducing not only my music but other people's music
0: okay and how did you choose the musicians for this
1: well um we have a band monkestra um so we have a core band it's a big band so there's Four trumpets, four trombones, and five saxophones, and rhythm section. So we have our core band, and they're they're great. You know, we rehearse, and uh, they make lots of sacrifices to to play the music, and you know, grow with us, um, make gigs. You know, where they're not making a ton of money, and stuff like that, traveling. You know. Um, so uh, we, we stick with that core band, but this record, we've added um, some old friends of mine, uh, John Patitucci um, on bass, Finney Cagliuta's playing some drums, Hubert Laws, um, one, of my, one of the first guys that ever hired me when I was a kid. Um, Jubilant Sykes is a great baritone, classical baritone song, uh, singer. Um, Ralph Moore is a saxophone player. Joey Francesco, great organ player. Hope I'm not leaving anybody out. Um, hope I'm not leaving
0: anybody out, but... No, no, yeah. that's cool. So, yeah, what actually motivated you to focus on Monk's music so much?
1: Uh, well, that's a good question. Um, it was sort of by accident. Um, I was learning this new notation software. You know, um, it's sort of like... Uh, a word processor, but for musical notation, musical notes, it's called Sibelius. And uh, because I was always writing scores out by hand and I was in a project where I had to learn this program fast. So when I was done, I thought I would, I hadn't done a big band chart in a long time. So I thought I would just, you know, learn the program with writing a, a big band chart. And so I chose a Monk tune just because he's progressive and classic at the same time to me. So I, um, you know, I I felt like I could experiment with new harmony and whatnot. I could just experiment with them in a way. So I chose this tune Epistrophe. And while I was doing it, the light bulb went on and it was like, oh man, I could really not only put myself in this music, but, you know, change. I could change meter when I want, I could change the groove I could start and stop. I could make it sort of episodic, if you will. Mm -hmm. And and I was like, wow, this is really inspiring. So I finished that one. Then I did another one. And then I got some friends together and uh, went to the union. You know, we have these musician unions and they have rehearsal rooms where we can all gather, like 802 in New York. This is 47 in L.A. And uh, down the basement, if you will, right? So we got together, and we had a good time playing the stuff, and it inspired me to write more, and I ended up with six. And so I, I sort of got a little money together and asked the guys to come in and demo the stuff for me, and that, that's what ends up being half of Volume 1. So I got half the record done and then shop for a record deal, and um, Mac Avenue signed us, and here we are three records later, six nominations later. That is beautiful. <laughs> That's very lucky and humbling. <laughs> Believe me. You know, he's, he's very difficult. It's, his music is very inter It's hard to play, um, but it's funky. It's inherently funky and swinging. Um, and it's like Bach's, Bach's music, you know, Bach... Any great composer like Bach, Stevie Wonder, if you will, you know, um, I love Stevie's uh, James music, so Taylor, Taylor I mean. or whatever, you know, you can really change the tempo. Bach sounds great at any tempo. So, and Monk is like that. His music is very pliable to me.
0: Okay, that's fair. So, can you please tell us how you're using the music of Monk and making it more modern? Because that twist on your songs sort were... Of- very unique and interesting. If anyone hasn't heard it, they, I highly suggest you do.
1: Well, I think what I learned from, from getting into Monk's Music is to be myself, right? And I didn't have anything to lose uh, when I started this project. You know, I'm, I wasn't writing for somebody else. It wasn't writing for hire. It wasn't for a TV show or a movie or anybody else. It was just me. And all the guys that I've worked with in the past and learned from, like, you know, Freddie and Freddie Hubbard and Miles and all these guys, they, they kept telling me over the years, you know, just do your thing, do your thing. And that has a lot of connotations, right? When you're young, do your thing. Well, okay, I am doing my thing, but what is that, you know? And over a while, you start to develop your own voice. And Monk, you know, went through so much, uh, he had a lot of challenges in his life, you know? People didn't like, um, especially at first, didn't understand his music and made, made fun of him a lot. Um, you know, he was sort of ostracized, you know? And, but he, he remained true to himself and over the years here we are 100 years later from him still you know he's still he's probably more popular than he was when he was living so in short i think what i learned from this is really to be myself and put my own what i hear in my head what i am uh, and all the influence that i've you know accrued over the years from doing the kind of music i love i love r&b i love jazz i love film music, I love Afro Cuban, I don't like it all, you know, so why not, you know? Um and I think people kinda respond to that in music with people being you know, people can smell a rat, you know, when you're not being sincere, I think. And I don't know. I think I found my my voice through Monk in a way.
0: Okay. No, that's really impressive. But how did, I should go like this, so how did you get your first major gig? I know it was with Sergio Mendez, another artist I love to death. How did you get that gig?
1: Um, I was playing in an Afro-Cuban jazz band with Justo Mario, and a, a conguero named uh, Ray Armando. And uh, a, a bass player from New York, his name is Essie Esiet. He's actually from Nigeria, but he's been in New York a long time. And you know, we were just playing little $30 gigs around town, you know, just playing and learning. I was learning about the clave. And um, um one of somebody's friend was at the rehearsal who's a percussionist. And he was a friend of, of the percussionist in Sergio's band saying, you know, Sergio's looking for a piano player, a keyboard player. Because this is this was a while ago. This is. Right at the beginning, when people started using multi-keyboard players, you know, because Sergio's a piano player. So, you know, it would have been playing synth parts or orchestra parts, if you will, in the synth. Pre-midi, I shall say. I'm really dating myself, but... <laughs> so, um, he told me about it, and he hooked me up with that percussionist, and who didn't really know me, so I just went and met Sergio and sort of just kind of dropped in my lap. It, some of these things just happen um, you know, for for no reason. Sort of being in the right place at the right time, you know. Um, yeah, that's how I got that gig. And actually,
0: that's how I've gotten most of my gigs, just by word of mouth, you know. I mean, to be honest, I want to be you when I grow up. There's the fact that you got to play with pretty much anyone that was big, especially in that era. And you saying that that gig and being at the right time led you to Freddie Hubbard, also?
1: Yeah, in fact, there was a saxophone player. Um, his name is Bob Shepard, who's actually the saxophone player in Monkastra. He's the lead alto player in the in the band, who I've known since those days. And uh, Billy Childs, great pianist, uh, had been playing with Freddie for years before that, and he left the band, and Freddie was trying a few other people. And um, in the meantime, and Bob recommended me and I showed up for a gig. I mean, you know, Freddie's one of those old school cats where he would audition you on a gig. (laughs) You know what I mean? So, and of course, I grew up, you know, on those CTI records. I knew his music, you know. And so I I showed up kind of knowing what to expect. I'd seen him live a bunch of times. The gig was in San Francisco, so he flew me up to San Francisco and, you know, got the gig. You know, I was there for off and on for about nine years. But, you know, those were different days, man. There were, you know, this was the 80s, man. It was still sort of the tail end of where you could, you know, go on the road with the jazz artists for five weeks, a month. And even then it would be, you know, playing you know, five nights a week in one city. Like, that's unheard of these days. But, yeah. you know, I was in my young... I was, you know, it was 20 or 21 or 2 or something like that. And I caught the tail end of that. And then, and then, you know, you'd come home from the tour and your chops would be blazing because you're playing with a guy like that
0: for five nights a week, you know. Oh. The young people that are just coming up and they don't have access to those type of gigs. Mm -hmm. What do you suggest to them?
1: Well, you know, yeah. For young people, it's just, it's just different. You know, there's, there's more young people playing jazz than ever now. And it's different in that back then there were only two, maybe three schools that you'd go to, to learn jazz. Berkeley was still going on, was, was going on. North Texas State University or University of North Texas in Denton, Texas. And I had I'd gone, you know, I'd, I went to junior high and high school there. So I wasn't going to move back to Denton. And Bloomington, Indiana, which is uh, University of Indiana, Dave Baker, right? Yep. Those were the dad schools. And Bloomington was just like Denton, so I wasn't going to go there. And I was already... Gigging around town when I was in high school, learning from older guys. And again, I, I kind of caught the tail end of that era where you learned on the gig and learned from older musicians and sort of old school, right? Kind of in between there. Now, the scene um, is at school and it's great because you've got access to all these young kids, young musicians and they're mo- a lot of them are brilliant, man, you know, all in one place. So you have a mini New York up in Boston at Berkeley, you know, where you could go to school during the day and learn. And then you could go to a practice room and have bands and play all night if you want, you know? So that's the scene. It's, it's still thriving and creative. It's just different. There's, you know, there's no, sort of money exchanged, you know, except for, except for tuition, I guess. I mean, you know, that's a...
0: That's huge. Yeah, I was about to say, you can't be coming out with a hundred plus grand in debt than trying to be mm. a jazz musician, in my opinion.
1: No, it's true.
0: And and
1: it's a travesty in, uh, that is like that here in, in the States, you know. There's no uh, minister of culture here, you know, I, you know, I still think it needs to be um, more culture and taught, taught at a younger age and then nourished, you know, in, in, in neighborhoods and community centers and churches, if you will, um, so that it gets back to being social music. You know miles called jazz social music because it was you know it it comes from blues and gospel music and in Africa where it was it was sung in villages for 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 uh, traditions and social gatherings and the news was spread this way, right and then you know it came to America. And it, and it was born and and it was born out of struggle and and perseverance and through through neighborhoods man you know I, I don't I don't want to come off any kind of weird way I'm just saying I'm just kind of trying to say my truth in that to me the it's great that it's in schools but this is not academic music, you know. This is, this is music born from the streets, uh, from neighborhoods, from social gatherings. Right. So, I I really think it'd be really cool if somebody, somebody like Berkeley has all this money in the world, somehow starts sending their graduate students or their Students there to play in, in all the neighborhoods, not just the black neighborhoods, not just the white neighborhoods, but all the neighborhoods, so that you know um, they, they understand that, that, that it's, it's cultural, you know, and it's not classical music and it doesn't have to be complicated
0: to be jazz. You know what I mean? No, I agree with you. I yeah. actually think there are too many jazz programs, yeah. I hate or to say it you, like that.
1: I do too. It's, I, it's too academic. You know? Yeah. It's too academic. Yeah. And I mean, then, I, it's great what they're doing.
0: Um, well, when you have that but many but they need to spread the love a little bit. I see it more like when you have that many programs and you have that many people that are professors, you become out of touch. Yeah. And you keep teaching your style, you know, and you don't learn yeah, anything. Yeah, your style. New.
1: Or you know the pedagogy of uh, of you know the, the jazz icons, which is super important because that's how we all learn and 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 learn sort of the language, if you will, right? But at some point, Miles made his own language. Train made his own language. Bird made his own language. Herbie, you know, everybody that we loved listening to and that we. You know, has their own language. Ambrose has his own language. Danilo, you know what I mean. So, okay, so that who in the to scene To me, right that now, needs to be taught in the schools is how how to how to find your own
0: voice. So, who in the scene right now do you believe has their own voice that stands out the most?
1: Oh, Ambrose. Uh, um, let's see. Uh, um, Justin Faulkner. Um, Chris Dave. Um, I agree with you uh, on Chris Dave, by the way. <laughs> yeah, for
0: sure. Um, it's going to take me a minute, but... Uh, no, it's uh, okay. It's okay. Just wanted to know your opinion on that. And since yeah. you mentioned him several times already, how did you end up performing with Miles Davis? Um, I had a... I was in
1: a band in L.A., called Audio Mine. And um, it was me, Vinnie Cagliuta, um Gary Willis, great bass player, and Steve Tavoloni. And this was sort of in the, well, I guess it was the late 80s. So smooth jazz was starting to happen in LA a little bit, you know, and mm-hmm. the clubs guys were playing that. And we were not into that, you know, we're not, That wasn't our thing. So we were like the anti-guys. We would, we would improvise whole sets, which was sort of unheard of in L.A. at that time. And um, electronic, and you know, I had synths and all this stuff. You know, it was fun. And, of course, all the drummers would come, you know. We called them stickheads, and they would hang out in the corner behind Vinny and watch him and listen to nobody else but the drums. <laughs> I'm just kidding, but, you know, stickheads. And... Um, Eventually, um, Vince Wilburn, Miles' nephew, who used to play with Miles, uh, he was a drummer. He is a drummer. Um, he came. He would start coming and hanging out. And He said to me one time, yeah, man, you should make a make a tape for Miles. And when I say tape, we're talking cassette. <laughs> so I kind of went back to my little, you know, little homes to my apartment and put on the HR-16 drum machine and <laughs> had my... You I know, put a loop on just all my sets and just, just sort of improvised to a cassette. Gave it to him the next time I saw him. And told myself, that, okay, I'm just gonna forget about this because, you know, it's not gonna happen or whatever, you know. And um about three months later, Miles called the house. My my wife was answered the phone. I was in Florida or something, and she called me back, and said Miles called you and I said, No, it's 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 one of our friends that's messing with us. And, No, I think it's him. So I called the number and it was him. And he just asked me to join a band like that. Okay. I mean. And I think that's the way it is with most of the musicians, most musicians that have, you know, I guess famous musicians, if you will. You know, they just, they hear something and they, it's not that big a deal to take a chance on a musician, I don't think, you know.
0: Not a big deal to play with Miles Davis. Okay. No, no, I'm not
1: saying that. I'm saying it's not a big deal to to take a chance on a musician that you've heard maybe on a tape or people have told you about. You know what I mean? Okay, okay, I guess you mean that. Okay, <laughs> you trust your buddies, you trust your people, and you, you trust your own ears. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. You know, you know, you, you could have fired me after the first rehearsal. But I guess part of being a leader and being a jazz musician is sort of taking a chance
0: every once in a while, you know? Okay. So what moment stuck out the most with him?
1: Well, the thing about him is that some of the stuff he would say still has new meanings. Confusing and interesting thing he said to me was, if you can't comp like Amar Jamal, then don't play. So, and... This is, you know, we're playing music of Tutu and Amandala. So it's not like, you know, Ahmad Jamal, and that is the trio, and we're not tipping in a way, you know? So at first I was like, well, I only heard Ahmad comp for a bass player. That's it. Then I started thinking, okay, he wants me to, you know, because Ahmad, Ahmad plays very orchestrated in a way, you know? he'll play really big and grandiose and then he'll lay out and then he'll play some runs and then he'll lay out. He's very sort of, it's not methodical. I guess it's, it's just sort of orchestrated sounding, right? It's improvised, but it's orchestrated. So I started comping for him like that, just sort of thinking to myself, well, when I make a statement, I'm going to make a statement and then I'm going to get out and get out of the way. And I, I still think that maybe that's what
0: he wanted from me. Okay. I mean, at the end He's of the day. He's not here to tell me, but. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah. at the end of the day, I'm jealous of you, man. Like I said, when I grow up, I want to be you. You could say you don't have to believe me. <laughs> uh, so another thing I, I'm really curious about. So how did you fit your style into modern pop music? Because I know you worked with Rihanna before. You did the VMAs for her, if I'm correct, right?
1: Yeah, I, I worked with Destiny's Child, and I worked with a lot of
0: pop, pop acts. Yeah, sure. Any of them stand out to you? Well,
1: I remember uh, working with Destiny's Child, and knowing right off the bat, they were all badasses. Um, you know, because they could they could sing. That's that's no joke singing. And, you know, this this is pre. Melodyne and tuning, they were they were really on it.
0: Um,
1: um well, I don't know, what's the question again?
0: Sorry. No mom. What made how did you get into that more modern music, mainstream pop music from jazz? Well, I mean,
1: I grew up, you know, with Hendrix and Earth Wind, and Fire and Watts Hunter, Third Rhythms Band and Sly and Stevie and Songs in the Key Life and Earth Wind, and Fire and Chaka, and, you know, that's the music of my generation. So, um, it's, and I was in LA, right? I wasn't in New York where the music scene is sort of segregated, you know? The only guy that I know in that was in New York sort of at the same time was Kenny Kirkland, who sort of played authentic, killing jazz, but also... Play with Sting, and you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm I'm sure there are other guys, uh, but you know, my generation—I was inspired by first of all those other people, and then you know, here's Herbie Hancock, you know, playing "Main Voyage," and then a few years later, "Headhunters" with synthesizers. So this is pre-Winton, if you will, and pre. Young Lions, where, you know, jazz was also Weather Report, and, you know, Headhunters, turned to Forever, and McLaughlin. And, but then we also had Dexter Gordon and, and Freddie and all these other people. So it was really wide open. And they paved the way for a guy like me to like, oh, I could be interested in synthesizers and still love Charlie Parker, Dad and Mel. So it was just... And and, and in in L.A., I could do studio work like that. I could play on a pop record and then that night go play a jazz gig or go play with Freddie somewhere, you know what I mean? So, um, it wasn't, and this is the thing about what I'd like to say, if, if there's any young people there, is that music is music is music and a groove is a groove is a groove is a groove. And learning how to play in the pocket with Chaka Khan and play parts on the piano is not that much different from playing the standard like and comping like Wynton Kelly. It's still a pocket. You still have to make it feel good. You know? No, I do. Yeah, it's got to be funky and it's got a groove in it, but it's also got to, you know, if you're playing standard, it's got to swing and... It, be in the pocket with the bass player and the drummer, you know? It's very similar to
0: me. Okay. And mm-hmm. then, so that led to that, I get you. So, what made you decide to go into film, television, and commercials? sir?
1: Well, some of my, I mean, when I was 13, 14, 15, I was really into Quincy Jones, you know? And then, of course, you know, mm-hmm. you know, it was like, you know, walking in space and then he moved to L.A. and did Body Heat and, you know, uh, Ironside and Sanford and Son and mm-hmm. the Henderson Tapes. and You know, I'm thinking, God, man, here's this guy writing these jazz scores. You know, I, I'd really love to do that sometime, you know. So when I moved from Texas... Back to our Texas, I lived in New York and went back and forth to L.A. and New York a bunch when I was a kid. And then ended up in L.A. and uh, that's something I always wanted to do. I wanted to be like Quincy and Dave Grusin and those dudes. You know? And I was lucky enough to end up being in L.A. and sort of meeting people that recommended me to, to do that kind of work. You know, and and I have to say that because that I could program a synth, because of Herbie and Chick and Joe Zonio, because of, and, and Stevie, you know, that, you know, because I had that interest and, you know, um, bought a used ARP Odyssey when I was in high school and learned how to program, signal path, you know, when technology got in, I could do it, you know, and... And people knew that I could do that, and it was still kind of new in the music business. You know, those those sounds, sequencing, drum machines, all that. I um, um and I was interested in it. What I didn't, um, I didn't put it down, or I wasn't afraid of it, or you know what I mean. You know, I wasn't um, sort of. Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Yeah, I wasn't... Um, Scared? Rebelling oh, against rebel. it or okay. something, you know? you know? I embraced it because my idols embraced it, you know? So one thing led to another, um, again, word of mouth. Mm-hmm. I ended up uh, uh, meeting the secretary that worked at the TV office at Paramount. And they started hiring me for a sort of grunt work, you know, like sound-alikes. And then they needed a synthesizer version of the Star, Star Trek theme, you know, like all synth. So they knew I had a synth, <laughs> probably the only thing. That's probably the only reason they knew I had a synthesizer. So I got the gig and then they liked it. So they kept hiring me.
0: Okay, what that led to Many amazing things, like the James Bond movie, Skyfall. Love the soundtrack for that, sir.
1: Thank
0: you. And Finding Nemo. Hmm.
1: Fun, fun gigs. Those Nemo, you know, that took like, a... that's about a nine-month gig because um, back in those days, the rendering for the software for, uh, for the animation mm-hmm. would take six weeks. You know, for so they had to divide the production, the post production of those movies of of Wally and Nemo into thirds. So we would score the first third of the movie and then they'd have to render it. The animation was so huge, right? And the computers were slow. So while they were rendering the next movie we'd start writing and then, you know, we're yeah, they had to divide it up three times. It's crazy. Well, it came out amazing, so. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's Thomas that, Newman, what a great, you know, he's a great composer and collaborator. He's an improviser. You know, he's a, he's a great composer and musician.
0: Mm-hmm. So what have you noticed about the state of music recently? especially with Corona and everything going on?
1: Oh, man, yeah. Well, at first, I don't think any of us thought it would be lasting this long. We thought maybe we'd be working by the fall, you know. Um, I'll have to say, though, it spawned... You're not going to be able to keep people from playing music, number one. If you're a musician and you love music, you're not going to, you know, nothing's going to stop you. And thankfully we have technology where, you know, we can send files back and forth or we can, we can do like streaming, small streaming things with, with masks on. But I got to tell you, man, I really, we all miss playing for people. That's, that's a huge, the first few things I did, I guess it was late March or early April, there was, Um, like a Tokyo Jazz Festival thing. And, of course, it it had to be all online. And um, they were sort of the first to kind of, like, aggregate. It was amazing what they did. They, um, you know, they had musicians pretty much playing by themselves from their living rooms or their studios and had them lined up for about 40 minutes apiece all over the world and timed out. It was pretty amazing what they did. But that was sort of the first thing I did. And because there was no audience and no feedback, the first couple of things I did, I mean, there was an audience, but I couldn't see them or feel them. And um, it it left me feeling cold. And I couldn't figure out why, you know, after or what it was. You know, afterwards or the next day, I'd be kind of bummed. And I I finally figured out. It was because there was no... I could see the audience or tell what the response is or, or kind of you know feel them in a way that that feeds me to feed them back. you know what I mean no I it was fully do it was yeah, it was really uh, it was really weird
0: so it's not
1: like not like doing an overdub for a record you know we do we all do that that's different, but when you know that you're performing and But yet you can't see them or feel them. It it was—it's an adjustment. Okay,
0: that I could relate to. And as much as I know people are trying it out still and doing those sessions, I'm not really a fan of it because I don't like mm -hmm. watching it from a computer. Yeah,
1: yeah. But it's a good stopgap right now, or a good bandaid right now. I think it's kind of what we have to do. you know and and i got used to it after a while it's not like it's i want to keep doing it but i did get used to it after a while uh, to where it doesn't bother me near as much as it used to and it's sort of a necessary thing right now you know unfortunately
0: okay where do you think jazz will be where do you think jazz will be in 10 years
1: Well, maybe it's easy for me to say where where I'd
0: like it to be. Uh, And it goes back to what we talked... Okay, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. I understand where you're coming from, but from your experience, especially since you're in a much deeper position than I am, from the film, from the popular music, from the jazz, from all that stuff, what do you think the trajectory is?
1: Well... If, if it keeps
0: going in the direction of
1: academia, then it's going to get a lot more complicated and uh, amazing. There's nothing wrong with complicated music. It will be amazing. Uh, I think it'll be, uh, they'll start stretching even more past, you know, odd meters to where you don't even think of them as odd anymore. Um, harmonically even more stretched out. I think it's going to keep pushing out that way. What I'm hoping, though, is that part of the audience will get used to hearing abstract harmony, and we'll be able to go with them. And also what I'm hoping is that musicians will start playing creatively and abstract if they want, but Playing for people again, playing, playing to move people, so that you know maybe maybe you can actually start dancing to jazz again. You know, now, I'm not talking about like you know hip hop jazz. I'm talking about like because you know we could I could dance anything. I could dance to. I shouldn't say dance. <laughs> I could move to you know music makes me move. I can feel pulse anywhere, and I. And if it's groovy, even if it's abstract, I, I like it. I can get up and move, and it makes me want to do that. Hopefully, we can get more of that happening, so that so that it touches people besides scientists, and you know, uh,
0: so you don't have to think as much. You just absorb when you're listening. You know. I agree. You're not the only yeah. person to say we need to get it back into dancing music. Yeah. I don't want to dumb down. Though. I didn't say anything about dumbing it down, too. I agree, though. Uh, okay.
1: Yeah. No, I just wanted to say it. I don't. I don't. You know, I wasn't implying that you were saying that. I just meant that. Okay. No. As, as sort of a sort of an addition, that you know, it should progress, of course. But yeah, that's what I hope.
0: Mm-hmm. So, if you can remove all the barriers, all the constraints. What type of project would you do and who would be on it? Hmm.
1: I'd like to do something. I've been thinking about this. I want to do something just sort of more inspired by what VJ Ivor has been doing and um, a little bit more progressive than what you've been hearing from me lately. Um, Maybe not, you know, uh, sort of tied to radio music in a way. Um, Still rhythmic. And I've always wanted to, Mix electronica and improvised music, and people do this, but the way it is, the way it feels now is that, as a as a drummer or a non-computer musician, I mean I'm a computer musician too, but I mean, uh, if you're playing an instrument along with somebody with a computer, seems like you're always as in a DJ. Seems like you're always tied into what. Uh, the DJ has got going on. We're always playing with them. I really want to find a way to mix mix it so that the, the DJ or the, or the computer, um, how should I call it, Get the computer instrumentalist, maybe, um, is just as free as the bass player to change tempo or to make a modulation or to make a, a new statement in the music. So he ends up being like another piano player or something, but it's not clocked. So the so the computer is more pliable to what we do as humans. You know, we could change fast, man. You know, you have musicians there together. You can you can change direction at the drop of a dime. Computer has a problem to doing that. So. Or maybe I just haven't found the right person that does that yet or haven't been exposed to it, let's say. So I I think that would be cool to try to really hone in on that
0: aspect. Okay. Do you know anybody like that? (laughs) I actually give you a name after the show of someone you need to check out. (laughs) Okay. That's actually good on that. So before we go though, We normally like to give a shout out and show our respects to the artists who came before them. But for you, sir, I'm gonna name an instrument and you gotta tell me who you want playing that instrument for you, if you could have a dream situation. (laughs) Okay. Okay? Uh Uh-huh. So on trumpet, who would it be? Oh my God, man, you would say that.
1: (laughs) Oh. Can I say, like, right now, or could it
0: be anybody? We're saying anybody, because you played with too many people. <laughs> uh, well, I'm going to stick with who's out there right now. Okay, that works.
1: Yeah. I, I, I'd say Ambrose, man. I'm trumpet. He's, okay. he's dealing. Yeah. Although, you know, Kenya Herald and uh, 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 Christian Scott O'Tooja and... And, um, this is my guy, man, does all the smoke sessions. Uh, uh, I see him all the time on Facebook. I love him. Um, anyway, and Nicholas Payton, I mean, this is a tough question, but right off the bat, my first name was Ambrose.
0: Okay. No problem, man. So on saxophone, who?
1: Well, let's stick to what's
0: happening now. Right. Okay.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Kenny Garrett.
0: Um, who? Kenny Garrett. Oh, Kenny Garrett. Okay, yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't hear you the first time. Yes, I'm Kenny sorry. Garrett. Okay. Yeah. Kenny, yeah. On um, bass.
1: Well, I love. I love Benjamin Shepherd, who plays in our band. So him, uh, but I, I love D. Hodge too.
0: Derek Hodge. Okay. On percussion.
1: Mm, that's a tough one. I always wanted to play with a Um As a percussionist, a Vascon- I accept that answer. Not a, not a Vasconcellos. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But, you know, also, you know, I love the Pocongueros, you know, like Pedro Martinez. And so, but do you want one, not a Vasconcellos.
0: Okay. As your vocalist, who would you choose?
1: Okay, well, that's going to get me in trouble. So I'm going to go with somebody dead.
0: <laughs> uh, no, I'm not. Stevie Wonder. Okay. No one could say anything on that. Do you know? And who would you have playing piano with you?
1: Well, some, well they all challenged me in a way, that's for sure, but... And I've played with Herbie a bit. Um, Wow. So you're saying Herbie? Mm. Oh, okay. Uh, Well, I've played with Herbie a bit. And of course Herbie. Of course Herbie. Of course all of them. Um, God, man. Who would I want? on my record playing with me right now? Probably Gerald Clayton. But that's not to say I don't love a lot of people.
0: Tough question, man. I mean, like I said, when you have a resume like yours, I know that's hard.
1: (laughs) No, it's just that, that, you know, there's so many great musicians, man. Wow. Mm -hmm. So many great young musicians too.
0: I should have, you know what, because I like to showcase some of the younger ones. Mm-hmm. Give me three young artists right now who is taking your attention. Mm. Uh,
1: what's the drummer's name to plays with Chick Corea now. He's Roy Haynes' son. Um, that you know what I'm talking about? Uh, he plays with Chick Corea's new band. He's been around for a while. Not Justin.
0: Um, I don't know off the top of my head. Ah, man. Okay, so let's see. The last one I remember off the top of my head is Dave. And you don't mean Dave, I assume.
1: No. Okay. Uh, um, young guys. Um, let's see. It might take me a, a minute to do this. Um, I'm trying to think of actually real young guys. Um, well, Jasmine Horn, I think is badass. Mm-hmm. Um, ben Williams. Um, I don't know if he's young anymore. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think of under 30 people, you know. Um, oh, uh, who's
0: Arturo O'Farrell's son? He plays trumpet, you know? Oh, <laughs> yes, I know who you mean. Uh, that's... Uh, oh, dang. And I know yeah. this But I know who you mean.
1: <laughs> yeah, him. Um, I don't remember his first name. Uh... uh
0: Oh. Um, um, Marquise Hill. Marquise Hill, yes.
1: Yeah. Oh, uh, Joel Ross, man. Wow. He's brilliant. I like his whole band, all those guys. In Adam band, is his son. Great. Adam O'Farrell, yes. right. Adam O'Farrell. Yes. Joel Ross, the vibraphonist.
0: Joe is nasty, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: That's a lot right
0: there,
1: right? That's Melissa good, that's Adana. good. Melissa. Um, I wish, you know, I wish I knew more sort of pop music or R&B music. Uh, but to be honest, man, the pop music, the top 40 thing, man, not do anything for me these days. Unless it's underground, you know? It's like what they play on the radio, it's like
0: nursery rhymes and stuff, man. It's catchy. Get like it gets most- their attention, I know. I have my own thing against pop music but they dominate yeah. the billboards right now
1: yeah i mean i love i love uh kendrick lamar i love his stuff um uh yeah i can't really think of anybody else like that that uh, i haven't been listening to a lot of you know popular music lately
0: Understood, that understood? Yeah. Well, sir, could you please tell everyone, your social media, your websites, how to contact you? Sure. Um, uh, Instagram is
1: John Beasley official. Uh, my website is Johnbeasleymusic.com. Uh, I have a fa- fan page on Facebook, um, YouTube channel, John Beasley. I think it's John Beasley Music. Uh, we've got some new material up there. We just did a, a couple months ago, we did a backyard concert. With the, with the trio with some of the record, some of the new, to, some of the new tunes from the new record kind of redone, you know, with Terry on gully and Ben Shepard on bass. So you can, you know, go come visit me there and say hello and keep listening to uh, this program. You're a very good interviewer, man. This has been really, really fun.
0: Well, thank you for coming on, especially during your busy time. And one other question. Is the Grammys going to be virtual? Are they going to let you guys go? I imagine they're going to be virtual.
1: Oh. I haven't heard for sure, but, you know, they're in January.
0: That's kind of, you know, kind of soon. I know, that because I'm assuming you're going to win at least one. I would like you to have your moment with the crowd there. Uh, that would be super sweet, man, because
1: ha- I have 10 nominations. No, I have no- nine nominations plus a Latin Grammy nomination and I've yet to win one. So uh, that would be
0: sweet. And yeah. sooner or later, man, uh, you're going to win one. I promise that. Yeah. <laughs> you're right. not going to be like Brian McKnight. <laughs> what is, what's Brian's thing? I think he has like 10 or 11 mm. and he hasn't won anything. Hmm. No, has yeah, no, 17. Point. My bad. Oh man, that's a lot.
1: <laughs> but you know, you know what Bramford told me? What? He said he said multiple nominations is better than one or two wins because it's it's it shows the body of your work over a period of time. You know,
0: of course, I agree and disagree. Okay. Yeah. But I see <laughs> what you mean though. But- well, he means, yeah. Yeah.
1: And you know my this guy Thomas Newman is a composer that you know is, I think he's been nominated for Academy Awards. You might want to look it up, but it's near a twenty, I think, and he's never won. Ow! You're talking about the guy that did Shaft, Redemption and James Bond, and you know. Yeah. Oh. Wow.
0: Oh. Tons wow. of great movies, you know, The Green Mile, you know, so. Yeah. Okay, well, everyone, be sure to check out his albums. And everyone, have a good night.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Leander.
0: That's that on jazz. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Improv Exchange. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, please be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Improv Exchange.